Uh, hello, everybody. Good evening. Oh, yay. Woo. <laughs> wow, the excitement in the room. I can feel it. Um, welcome to Artist Space Books and Talks. It's really amazing to see so many people here on a very wet and windy evening. Uh, I'm sorry that we haven't got seats for everybody. Um, we're trying to fit a few more in at the back. Uh, but yes, um, if you're willing to stand, that's amazing. So uh, this evening's event is the third in a series of four public evening events taking place as part of We Not I, a four-day convening bringing together women artists, writers, curators, and thinkers identifying with feminist practices. We Not I has been organized by London-based artist Melissa Gordon and writer Marina Vishmit, and at its center are a series of daily meetings being held here at Artspace Books and Talks focusing on particular topics that feed into the events and the evenings. So we had, hopefully some of you have come to the last two evenings and experienced uh, a couple of events we've had that have been really pretty amazing. Angie Kiefer and Lynn Tillman on the first night, and then last night, Ariana Raines reading Chris Krause, and then Melissa and Meredith Sparks giving presentations. Um, so I'm gonna hand over shortly to Melissa Gordon, who's gonna say a few further words about We Not I, the general project how it came to, to be here in New York and its general structure. Um, and also to say a few words about this evening's program before handing over to Kathy Noble. Um, so, but firstly, I wanted to say it's a real amazing pleasure and privilege to have Dara Birnbaum and Joan Jonas here with us tonight. Um, and thank you for t to Kathy, Kathy Noble uh, for organizing and moderating this discussion. Um, sadly, as you may know, Judith Bernstein was due to be part of the conversation tonight, um, but, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, she's had to pull out, um, and I'm sure she'll be sorely missed tonight. Um, but before I pass over to Melissa, I wanted to just say a couple of brief kind of announcements. Um, so tomorrow's daytime session of We Not I, the working session that will lead into the evening event, is open to anybody to attend. Uh, it runs from 11 till 5 p.m. All the information, the schedule for the day is on our website, and we really encourage you to come to that. It's going to be a very interesting, productive meeting during the day, leading into um, an event in the evening, uh, which will involve uh, the participants Sylvia Federici, Melanie Gilligan, Shaunta Smith-Cruz, Lisa Soskolny, and Marina Vishmit. And I also wanted to extend a huge thank you to Thea Westright-Wagner and Ethan Wagner, who supported the We Not I program, uh, a really substantial kind of contribution to making this happen, and also to the Friends of Artist Space, who support all our programs at Artist Space. And also a little plug um, that you might already heard if you've been here the last two nights, but a plug for our membership program. Uh, this is really important to the way we fund what we do at Artist Space. It's uh, an annual contribution to artist space a membership fee of $60 or $40 if you're an artist with that you get free entry to our events we try and guarantee you a seat at our events as well if you're a member um, so if you're able to support us in that way that would be really amazing you can sign up at the end of the evening in the bookstore at the front uh, so without further ado I'll hand over to Melissa thank you Thank you all so much for being here on um, this really exciting evening. Um, so I'll just give a very brief um, background to the general project. Um, we, not I, this is the second um, and last iteration of um, a two-part uh, program. The first part was held in London in the spring 
um, with over about 40 women artists, writers, and thinkers that came together um, for six days in a row talking and meeting and then having public events around um, similar questions that we're having here. And that was held between South London Gallery, Flat Time House, and Raven Row in London. Um, so this week at Artist Space, um, we've been having working meetings during the day um, that are discursive and kind of a nod to consciousness raising groups, um, exploring questions around gender and practice and both individual and collective practices. Um, and like Richard said, tomorrow we're open to all. So um, we'll be here from 11 till 5 um, discussing kind of generally what we've been um, talking about throughout the week, but specifically around value structures and contemporary art. Um, so in short, each day has been focused on a different theme. The first day was focused on the artist's voice. Um, the second on uh, expanded authorship, today on legacy, and tomorrow on value in very, very um, brief terms. Um, every day, we're, we're, um, each evening, um, we're bringing the day conversations into a public event, trying to activate a debate tonight, um, which I think is incredibly important around the topic of our contemporary relationship to the ongoing feminist legacies. Um, so with no further ado, um, I'm going to just read the bios. Um, we're so honored and excited to have uh, Joan Jonas and Dara Birnbaum here with us, um, led by Kathy Noble. Um, so Kathy Noble is a uh, curator uh, and writer based in London, and she's currently working with the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. She was a curator in residence at the Wising Art Center in 2013 to 14, and prior to this was the head of exhibitions at Nottingham Contemporary, where she worked on exhibitions with ASCO, Jeffrey Farmer, Mark Leckie, and Tala Madani. From 2007 to 12, she worked as a curator at Tate Modern, where she organized numerous commissions, exhibitions, and events, including the Tanks Opening Program and Tate Modern Live, working with artists such as I. Ar um, Arakuana, so, ah, sorry, Tanya Bruguera, Michael Clark, Karen Sitter, and Ter Anna Teresa de Kersenmacher. Um, she has published numerous essays in magazines, catalogs, and books. Um, Joan Jonas is a pioneer of video and performance art and an acclaimed multimedia artist whose work typically encompasses video, performance, installation, sound, text, and drawing. Light Time Tales, a major res retrospective of her work was presented at the Hangar Biocca in Milan, Italy from October um, 2014 to February 2015 and opens at the Malmo Kunsthalle on 25th September 2015. Um, she has had major retrospectives at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, the Galerie de, Start, uh, de Stadt in Stuttgart, and the Queen's Museum of Art in New York. Um, Jonas is currently representing the United States of America at the 56th Venice Biennial with a new commission presented by the MIT List Visual Arts Center, Massachusetts. Dara Birnbaum's provocative video works are among the most influential and innovative contributions to the contemporary discourse on art and television. Her work has most recently been shown in um, America is Hard to See at the Whitney Museum of American Art and in Cut to Swipe at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Her work has been exhibited at major institutions such as, the, such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Tate Modern in London, the Museo Nacional Centro de Art uh, Reina Sofia in Madrid, and the Moderna Musite in Stockholm, amongst many others. She has been the recipient of numerous distinguished awards, including the Certificate 
in recognition of service and contribution to the arts um, from Harvard University, and the American Film Institute's Maya Deren Award for Independent Film and Video Artists. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Melissa. Sorry, I'm probably too close to the microphone. Um, I'm so pleased to be here today with um, Joan Jonas and Dara Bumbum. Um, it's very exciting to have them both together to discuss a number of different topics. Just to give you a little bit of structure so you know what we're doing, I'm going to do a short introduction. Um, and then I'm going to pass over to Dara. And Dara will show two videos and also speak briefly. And then I'll pass over to Joan, who will show some clips. Um, and then we are going to move on to a kind of structured discussion between the three of us um, for a period of time. And then I really want to open the floor up to all of you guys to ask any questions you would like um, to Joan and Dara and me, if you want. Um, so. Um, the title, How to Be a Woman, arose, arose from considering how we form ourselves. In particular, how these selves are actively constructed and performed under the influence of the systems and the structure, structures that we live within from a very early age. And how so many of these systems and ideas of how to behave and how to live in terms of how we, in terms of how we identify via gender in our lives, work, behavior, and social and political positions. Yet the categories of gender across the spectrum are often based upon the creation of op oppositions and of binaries. To fit in with one is to refuse another. Other political and social structures of identity operate in a similar fashion. As such, how we behave is often enacted by oscillating between different polarities and to inhabit shades of grey in between. I was also considering the title of this series of events, which is we, not I, which seems to favour the group over the individual via the capitalisation of the we. And also I was considering the act of choice to work with women only as a method with which to address working collectively and also to consider feminist histories. This led me to consider how this impulse to identify and categorize humans and groups via gender, economy, social circumstances, politics, or race is fundamentally in opposition to what is generally considered necessary to be an artist, i.e. to form, make, and present, present a unique view or interpretation of aspects of the world. However, self-grouping is also an important way of creating new institutional structures context and support. Hang on. Yeah, those of us who work in the field of art learn, write, and rewrite art history by using a series of categorizations of medium, of nationality, of gender, of subject matter, and whatever else seems relevant at the time. And we also create groupings of artists and works by the categorizations of working methods, process, medium, time, period, and history, subject matter, and aesthetics. We group and we categorize art in order to try and understand these individuals' work and the society and politics of the time they lived or lived in. Yet these forms of categorization are also an active form of validation and acceptance. If something appears like something else, has similar qualities, 
we feel able to consider and identify its meaning in relationship to that which we already know or that which we are familiar with. However, this is a paradoxically flawed system as we desperately want the artists and the work that they make to challenge the categorizations that so quickly become normative and to stand up for itself and to think of the world anew. Alongside this, art history, art criticism and curating are fields that function mainly as a series of institutions. Yet within these institutions, oh sorry, yet these institutions are constructed by individuals and their opinions and their tastes and these opinions and this taste is formed by the experiences in the world. This is, indeed, an obvious thing to state, but I think it needs stating far more often and more widely than just in the context and discussions around institutional critique. Grouping via those identifying as women, as We Not I has done, is a simplistic form of categorization, and one that has often occurred when considering feminist work within the visual arts. However, it is a categorization that was, and perhaps still is, very necessary if you consider that it is only really in recent art history that the field of visual arts has become an active place for women. In the 70s, the percentage of women showing within galleries and museums was mostly in single digits. Now, and I'm saying this as a generalization, it is not a true statistic, more an observation of my experiences and watching programs, it probably averages at around 30%. The exhibition WAC, Art and the Feminist Revolution, curated by Connie Butler in 2007, presented an amazing group of women artists and a selection of powerful, important work. However, each of their active individual involvement in feminist polit politics varied very greatly, as did their work in terms of subject matter, style, and many other things. In response to this, in late 2012, whilst I was working at Nottingham Contemporary, I began to put together ideas for a so far unrealized exhibition of artists' work, including mostly women and some men, that took the feminist address of gender identity, archetypes and stereotypes, ranging from the 60s, 70s and 80s as a point of departure. I also began a series of interviews with artists on their lives and their work, um, beginning in this kind of period. This, this address of gender as a subject and construct I believe led to an attitude of feminism as a site of transformation to be used more widely to question and imagine other possibilities and other structures to live within. Alongside this, the use of different media, technology, performance, broadcast, and art as a form of activism was highly influential on subsequent generations. So, I invited Dara Birnbaum and Jane Jonas, and originally Judith, but sadly she can't be here, to come and discuss the role of the concepts of identity and gender in their work and how this led to wider ideas and politics that consider how we live. In particular, I was thinking about the differences between Dara's use of ready-made mass media material in comparison to Joan's use of fiction and psychological states. Alongside this, I'm also interested in their relationship to feminism and the politics of this and their work and their lives. Um, so I'm going to pass over to Dara. Dara, do you want me to put the videos on first, or would you like to speak first? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. For, thank you for coming. Um, you know, they, um, originally there were three of us, as has been mentioned, with uh, Judith. 
And um, the older I get, the more I feel that I have to be very present for what I'm at at the moment. What I'm going to ask you to do is, Judith is actually unwell, is if we could take 10 seconds just to take a silence and to wish her well and to say a prayer, I would like that very much. So I'm just going to breathe for 10 seconds. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I, I, I wrote some things I don't usually read, but I will read. Uh, I come from a rather, I want to give you a little bit of a background, and that way you can ask more questions, and, and Joan and I can have even more of a discussion. I come from a rather, what I consider a leftist background. In other words, I'm not voting for Trump. Um, <laughs> I, I call my years of living in Berkeley, California, that was a locus for political activity in the 60s and 70s as my growing up period. Um, I took on a belief in Marxism, not Maoism, not anarchy, nor even feminism, uh, that was all prevalent in the political struggle at the time. Uh, belief more in the need for change along the lines of uh, advanced capitalism that we're facing now, and um, along with the change along the lines of class distinction. In other words, the feminist movement for me in Berkeley was too much of a separatist movement at the time. I was an architect. I was involved in environmental design. I was against building for the main part. And all, when I was young, I actually worked on the World Trade Center. So I saw them come down. I live about 14 blocks away. And I knew immediately that they would come down because I remember where every fucking uh, <laughs> column was that we had designed and trying to go higher, ever higher. Uh, even from 14 blocks away, I could see the difference of people jumping from windows rather than the trash that was coming out, and I could smell burning flesh. Those are the moments that define me. I already faced a gender difference in being the only woman in my class in architecture to graduate from Carnegie Mellon University. I was the only woman to graduate in three years. I started at 16 years old, which was a record, and that also informed me. I did not have one female professor in the School of Architecture. I had a late light, late, <laughs> late light that I can't even pronounce yet, curfew, to study till 10.15 in the architecture building, while all the guys got to study all night long. I did not consider myself a feminist, although it was a term used by me, by my father actually, on me, usually in a rather negative way. When I left architecture for the arts, it was because I believed what the architectural theorist, Manfredo Tufori, wrote. He saw television as the architecture of the day. So did I. And it was the architecture embedded with aspects that were against my own ideology that took me away from it. It was, and then I went toward television. And it was especially the representation and the stereotyping of women that got to me the most. So I did works like Technology Transformation Wonder Woman or Kiss the Girls and Make Them Cry. A few years ago, one of my fellow artists Nicholas Guanini, who I doubt is here tonight, 
would say to me that I was a feminist video artist. He did an interview with me for Cabinet. I hated that he would call me that. He actually teased me about it. But he simply was proceeding the way I would now f uh, frequently be called out historically. I also believe in Sergei Eisenstein's comment that when one is making revolution, you can no longer call it that. So if you can call something by a label, it means that its active and critical state is no longer active. And I adhere to that principle. When I left architecture for the arts, it was also because I found architecture too political and too economically controlled, always with a client and a building made into a concrete position or perspective. At that time in the mid 70s when I first approached art, I felt that art was still a place, inspired by people like Joan, was still a place where I could question and fight back, where I could still test the First Amendment and also try to question perspective and open up new directions through thought and through viewing. When I was invited to document to seven, you were there too, uh, I was the only video artist, although Joan did have a work that included a video in it, uh, as did General Idea. I remember that the percent of women for that documenta had been approximately 2%. For documenta 9, a good friend of mine, who you might know, Hans-Ulrich Obrist, asked me to drop out of documenta 9 as spurred on by Uta Medebauer because he said there weren't enough women in Documenta 9. At that time, there was actually 4%. So it was twice as much as 1982. And I told him that, look, there's a change. <laughs> uh, sim similar to our finally getting a congresswoman into the US, we got two of them in around that time. Um, removal for me was not the option. Having my voice heard as loud and strong and as clearly as I could make it was the option and it was the road that I wanted to take. So I'm gonna show you just two very quick videos. Uh, one that used to be very fast, but in these times seems very slow, kiss the girls and make them cry. And immediately after that 30 second clip called MTV Heartbreak.
fast in to be here and um, to be with Dara and, and, uh, and Kathy. Um, so I have a completely different um, tone. <laughs> She's positive. I'm not. <laughs> oh, no. No. Um, so I began, um, I'm just giving very fast, a uh, little background. Um, I, I began by studying art history and, and then when made sculpture, concentrated on sculpture. And then, because of what I saw in New York in the um, people doing happenings, visual artists and dancers, I was immediately attracted to what we call performance. I agree with Dara about these labels, by the way. We can talk about that another time. But um, so tonight, I began with a mirror as a prop, and I was influenced by Borges, the writing of Borges, which is why I chose the mirror. And not because it was a narcissistic object, he doesn't use it in that way, but it, it's a definer of space. And, it, it's, and also, um, it relates to the way his stories are structured. Um, multiple universes, the endless library, and so on. And that interests me a great deal. And so the mirror was a, um, a way to represent space. And then, from then, after doing the mirror performances, I went on to work with uh, video. I bought a porta pack in Japan in 1970, and I'm showing you, I'm doing a very brief little uh, introduction of each little clip. 
the first piece that I'm showing you is Organic Honey's Visual Telepathy. It was the first piece, my first video piece, and in relation to how Dara relates to TV, um, my beginning and also my relationship to the medium was very different, and because in the late 60s and early 70s, um, actually artists were, there was a gallery that showed video, a uh, Sonnabend gallery, uh, Castelli Sonnabend, but also there were TV programs on Channel 13 that showed artists' videos. So many of my early works were shown on television. Of course, that doesn't exist anymore. So it was a completely different, it was, even if it was a few years earlier, it was a different uh, context. And um, so Organic Honey's Visual Telepathy in relation to what we're talking about tonight, feminism. Um, feminism, the whole movement for me was very important. And for all of us at that time, it was very important. I think it was a different moment. Um, because it was kind of like an explosion of anger and uh, realization. Even though it had been going on for some time, Simone de Beauvoir wrote The Second Sex, I think, in the 40s. So this, these questions had been in the air for a long time, but it really hit in a certain way at that time. So the first clip is Organic Honey's Visual Telepathy. And the idea behind this, aside from work, the way I was interested in working with video in relation to film and the technology, which is inseparable from the content, um, was to explore whether or not there is such a thing as female imagery, because at that time, everybody was saying, oh, you know, the masts in Moby Dick are phallic images, and the moon is feminine, and the sun is masculine, and so on. So I wanted to explore that idea, so we could play the first clip. Can you stop and start them? Um, hang on. I don't know, if we can't, okay, if we can't stop and start them, I'm just going to tell you, Harry, can we stop and start wherever? No, 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 that's okay. okay. It's too complicated. Okay. Right. So uh, I'll just tell you briefly what the other clips okay. are. Cool. Yep. The second clip, um, so it's partly because of Kathy's questions. Um, so I began by representing this character called Organic Honey, and um, it was the idea of transforming myself and playing different roles and changing my persona and creating a different persona called Organic Honey. I did that because I was sitting in front of the monitor in the closed circuit system of the monitor and the camera. And um, I began to work with my, with my appearance, with my identity. And that was um, the way I began to think about my performance at that time. The video was an ongoing mirror. Um, subsequent works, I was concerned from then on, really mainly, in my perform in my performance, my, my part in this, um, with the idea of role playing, what are the roles that women play? And so from Organic Honey, which was a kind of erotic, uh, I got the mask in a, in a, um, erotic, a store that sold erotica, and so on. So I was interested in a different, something opposite from myself, and also playing with the sensual aspects of, of video. And from then on, I began to work with fairy tales and, and I began to work with storytelling. But I worked with different roles, like I, I based one piece on um, photographs taken by Hilaire Bullock of prostitutes in New Orleans and so on, glass puzzle. Anyway, so I'm going to skip, then I skipped to um, 2003 and um, then I started making large, more epic pieces, but to do with different kinds of stories that had a wider um, reference, because gradually, 
in all my work, even though they seem very personal and, and um, in a way local, they always relate to the world because in, in the subject matter and in the references. Um, so Lines in the Sand was based on the, poetry, the poem of um, HD called Helen in Egypt. And Helen in Egypt was about Helen of Troy, never went to Troy. She went, she went to Egypt and said, and therefore the Trojan War was fought for an illusion. And that related to the way we fight wars. They're always fought for a reason, for lies that were told lies about the wars. So, I, so my pieces include this, um, this aspect. Um, and I'm going to show you a clip from the installation and then a clip from the performance so you see the difference in the two areas. Then um, the next clip is from a piece called Reanimation based on a piece called um, Under the Glacier by Hildor, uh, Haldor Laxness about glaciers. So I'll only say that I began to work with the idea of glaciers. It's a novel. The first thing I think about that you think about is glaciers are melting. So I began to get into this other area of the environment and of the um, situation we find ourselves in today. The last two clips are from the Venice Project called They Come to Us Without a Word. And the first would be also the installation in the second clip, a clip from the performance. So you see the difference. And at some point I can talk about how I um, alter the material from the installation to the performance or vice versa. So does that, yeah. So now we can just play the clips. Sorry, I just need to remember how to do this. Can we make it a tiny bit louder as well, please, if possible? I think I've, it, it's at the top already. Yeah, they're both at the top already. early video sound. Thank you. 
circuit breaker that you hear. A simple spiral shell may tell a tale more ancient than these mysteries. These pictures are so clear. They are like transparencies set before candles in a dark room. I may or may not have mentioned these incidents to the professor, but they were there. Upon the elaborate buildup of past memories, across the intricate network made by the hairlines, that divided one irregular bit of the picture puzzle from another, there fell inevitably a shadow, a writing on the wall, a curve like a reversed, unfinished S, and a dot beneath it, a question mark, the shadow of a question. Is this it? The question mark threatened the shadow, the apparently most satisfactory answers. Look. 
looks at the glacier long enough, words cease to have any meaning on this earth. And it was so funny. When we went out, it was so dark, you couldn't see your hand ahead of you. And when we came out of the barn, everything was so bright.
Thank you, Jane and Dara. Um, oh, do you want some water? There you go. Maybe both of you touched on some of these things a little bit, but I'd be interested um, to kind of go right back to the beginning and your early lives a tiny little bit more in terms of how you grew up and what the influences were that you had around you and maybe what led you to become artists. I know, Dara, you studied architecture first and worked as an architect. And Joan, I think you studied art history and, and art at the same time. Sculpture, yeah. And sculpture at the same time. But I guess in terms of what I was introducing in the first place and what, what I don't know, circumstances you were living in, why would you... What led you to want to become artists, and what were the influences around you? Um, well, you mentioned your father. I'll mention my father. <laughs> no, my father <laughs> was a failed it's on artist. Feminism. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well admit it, you know. No, but my father. I wanted to. to I wanted to. Um, I was. I loved to make art. I had no. As a woman, I have to say, um, as a young woman. I had no idea that I could ever become an artist or, you know, I, I didn't have confidence in myself. It was because, it wasn't because there weren't strong women at that time in the 50s or in the early 60s, because there were many strong women, but maybe from my family and my background, my mother did not instill in me confidence, self-confidence. So it had to be my father who said, who pushed me to go to, you know, to go to art school. I'm very grateful to him. I'm really... Sorry, he's not around to, to see this, frankly. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't usually tell people that. I don't know why I'm telling you tonight. But, um, but that's the truth. And, but I really wanted to be an artist. And then I just considered myself a student um, until I was about 32. Because I was a, kind of a late bloomer. So it took me many years, it took me all those years to, um, to finally realize when I found my form, which was performance at that time, and video. Hmm. I can talk about my father and mother, who both um, rest their souls. Uh, yeah, I, I did, um, I, I was good at whatever one can consider art is. Uh, growing up, and it was the thing that was never going to be touched. It was mine. Uh, I didn't ever want anyone to touch it. And uh, I went much more for a, what was considered a professional career like architecture that I thought might have some aspects of the arts as well as things I loved, like mathematics, uh, involved in it. And then I started to realize that all of that was meant to define uh, and constrict situations, to design for. And the more I looked toward the arts, I realized that the arts seemed to have, to me at that time, a freedom of expression to open up and to question. And for me, one of the most important things in life is that ability to keep questioning. And um, my first uh, encounters might have been going to Castelli Sonnabin Gallery and watching Trisha Brown or her dancers, I don't remember, jump off the roof and uh, all you were seeing from the inside was bodies floating on the outside. That was Simone Forti. That was Simone? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I was so young. I didn't know. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, Simone, who, whose work I do love, and uh, who came out of Anna Halpern as I worked for Lawrence Halpern. And um, yeah, seeing something like that challenged me. Um, television challenged me a lot. I was so sick of what was the common denominator, most popular language in the 1970s, where people were watching seven minutes and 20 seconds, sorry, seven hours and 20 minutes per day, according to the Nielsen rating, and I wanted to fight back. Whether someone called it art or not art, I actually didn't care. It was much more about what I felt was necessary to say and how was I going to get that out and who was I going to get it to? And that's about it. Hmm. Can I just say a few, I mean, just to get away from my own little personal things, but um, also I loved, I loved art. That was just simply bottom line. I loved art history. I loved looking at paintings and sculpture. I loved, I also was very involved with go, filmmaking and going, when I moved to New York, going to the anthology film archives every day, that was another passion which became part of my language. And, um, and so on and so forth. So it was really a, a basic, um, simply there was no question, I think at some point, of whether I was going to do this or not, whether or not you call it being an artist or art. And I, mm. I still think that um, some of the most interesting art is what you don't think is art. I guess then on the subject of doing things that people weren't other people weren't necessarily doing, I think aside from this question of feminism and other things in your social circumstances, both of you were very radical in your approach to materials, um, Dara, in your approach to, I guess, a form of appropriation of mass media, etc., and Joan, just in terms of using videos so, so early on. Do you think this was, I guess, to bring gender back into it, a gendered reaction to art history? Did you, want, did you use these things that seemed new because it, it was different from what other people were doing? There was always, when I started in the 70s, uh, there was always a kind of mythology uh, that I kind of hate the equation, like video is new and women are new to the arts, yep. so they go together. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, but uh, for me, I, I, to be honest with you, when you're saying about loves, I, I had a love and fascination of um, electric, electronic devices. Mm. Um, and the first video I saw was by accident, and you were involved uh, in that that it was at a place, a little t um, center uh, gallery called Centro Diffusione Grafica by Maria Gloria Bacocchi in uh, Florence. And I just happened to be there and I saw people uh, watching what I thought was television and instead they were actually watching the earliest videotapes and I know Joan was one of the people that was invited there. And they asked me in to look and I thought I'd be watching TV and instead I was watching something new and that something new did appeal to me. Mm. And uh, I, I have a love, if you have a love of art, I have a, a love of, of video, video editing. And um, I loved uh, things that were invisible and needed to be put together and were like a chess game, where you, you, the actions and what your plans were and what your strategies were were in your head, and then it was put out. I, I love film, but watching video grow, now watching internet grow. 
now watching other things come by that I can't even catch on to because I'm getting older and it's going faster. Uh, you know, so those are the things that amaze me. Hmm. And Joan, I guess, I mean, you touched upon a few of these things already in terms of um, organic honey, but also I, in a number of different interviews and things you've spoken about, in the same way that Dara mentioned the Simone Forty performance, you were also surrounded by the Judson Dance Theatre and... Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just say, just history. Um, mm. In the 60s, I, because of the various people I knew, I was lucky to see and to know about performances by Lamont Young. Mm. I was living uptown, we'd come downtown to see Lamont Young, and um, an Oldenburg happening, and uh, Rauschenberg, and all the... the, the um, the performances that were, as I mentioned before, and I was immediately fascinated, Lucinda Childs, um, and I was fascinated by the kind of oddity of all of it. It appealed to me. Also, at the time, when I, after I left Columbia, I got a job at the Green Gallery, which was run by Dick Bellamy, who was a very important gallerist who discovered a lot of artists that you've heard of. and. Um, it was the last six months of that gallery. So I was kind of deeply involved in, um, in just being in, in that world and finding out all the things that were going on. So, but as far as gender, um, I didn't use that word either. I never, um, I didn't think of, I'm making something to do with gender. Yep. It was simply, um, simply very simple. I mean, I deal with material and and I start with the, the physical thing, which would be um, the camera and the monitor and myself sitting in between them. So for me, it's about material. Mm. And there I am, I'm a woman. You know, that's part of the material. And so I didn't have a theoretical relationship to that as far as, um, you know, the idea of gender. But I did relate to it in relation to my own, I mean, I know, I, I agree with you about, about, I mean, it is corny to think of women and, you know, it's video and they're both new. But on the other hand, painting and sculpture, fields of painting and sculpture were dominated by men. So it was natural for women to go into these, to, to become, there, the dancers were mostly women that I knew. There were some men, but they were mostly women. And I have to say that that um, atmosphere was incredibly supportive. And there was always, the, the audiences consisted of, I mean, we were all, that's when the boundaries were being broken down, but the audience, audience my audience consisted of people from every discipline, you know, I mean, painting, sculpture, music, dance, and so on. So it was just something that was there and it existed. And that's where it comes from, mm. you see. I guess then maybe talking a little bit about some of the things we've just watched a bit, um, and particularly you, Dara, and how did you begin to find the material you work with? Because today, obviously, with the internet and all these other things, it's a very quick process in terms of finding other things. You must have, it must have been very difficult to, yeah, decide to do that and then actually gain access to all these things that you wanted to use. Mm -hmm. well, let me go back to, to gender as yep. well. Of course. Um, that uh, thinking about it, 
Um, the names that I became familiar with in the arts early on were, were mainly male, uh, were people like Nauman or Kanchi. Um, and uh, this, the field of uh, video, video editing, if you didn't want to or weren't fortunate enough to take it in your own hands, uh, many of us did use a porta pack, which I did at first. But when I took it into the studios, that was very male dominated. And uh, for example, my editor, who is still my editor after 35 years, God knows, um, would say to me, uh, Dara, do you know why they invented the Chiron? Does anyone know what the Chiron is? Yay! Us old people. It, it's like a, a typewriter for television, you know, the way that you type in and the, it goes up who the newscaster is and everything. So John would say, uh, do you know why, you know, they invented the Chiron? I said, no. And he says, so women could have a job in television too. And um, it, it, it was for me a very, very dominant male industry that I had to enter into. Mm -hmm. And the idea was how to get these images of women like Wonder Woman out of their flow, out of TV. Number one at the time in prime time in, in 1978. Um, and the only way was really to steal, beg, or borrow. Yep. Uh, and I'd call it stealing, uh, but I hope there's not a lawyer in the audience tonight. Um, and I didn't care about copyright at that time. Uh, and I thought the copyright issue was about taking dominant corporate images and utilizing them and putting them together. And, um, you know, actually, to be honest, and that might be true for both of us, we're going to be very honest tonight, um, is that I think uh, looking okay at that time and uh, having a way and talking my way into things is that I got these guys to get the imagery out for me. <laughs> and and uh, I just wonder, it, it, I wasn't going to women you know, to get the images, mm. except I remember one or two who were working for CBS. But uh, it, it was guys taking out and stealing and believing in my ideas and my ideology. And that was a way to, to take out those images. And so this was very, very hard. So when I uh, lecture, I realized that when I started, I feel there was a dearth of imagery. It was very hard to get at the images that were coming at us. Whereas today, it's, we can't get away from the images that are mm. coming at us. Too true. Um, Joan, I know you, were, you did just say that in terms of those earlier works, it wasn't a conscious address of the word gender. Well, I mean, I was consciously changing my appearance and playing and, do, and, 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 and involved in role playing, mm. but I didn't think of it as gender. I didn't use that word, that's yeah. all I'm saying. But in hindsight, what do you think of those works now then? Well, I think they're interesting. <laughs> but do you, do, does it does it seem more overtly to do with gender now? Well, you know that's what the or language. Or is it what now people like me I are mean, placing on no, this thing? No, no, no. I mean, yeah. it's another word for the same thing. Yeah. that's the way I see it. Yeah, it's not more or less. It's just another word for the same. Yeah, you're describing the same thing that I yeah. did. Okay, okay. I'm not sure of that. Maybe uh, not. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think that uh, feminism had a very um, a strong, um, woman-based, uh, you know, um, 
that that was its use in the 60s and 70s and before, as mm -hmm. you related to historically, mm -hmm. certainly before that, uh, than just in the arts. But gender to me kind of signifies both genders. Yeah, and I think you're right, yes, it you does. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, a very good point. But I was obsessed, I mean, I was really considered at the time working with the female, the idea of the female, and myself as a woman. And so I chose stories that were about women, like the uh, Juniper Tree. It was a Grimm Brothers fairy tale about mm, a woman. Yes. The Volcano Saga is about the only saga about a woman. So I was consciously choosing, exploring the roles that women play, and also bringing women from the past. So it's very different. <laughs> we're in different worlds. But we knew each other and respected we knew, and, each other. And I would say that uh, pieces I didn't bring with me tonight uh, and that like arabesque or ifartung. Ifartung uh, is a uh, written in uh, 1909 um, opera by Schoenberg, but the libretto was by a woman, and that's the reason I chose mm -hmm. it. And the character, the only character in it is a woman. Mm -hmm. Or arabesque comparing a kind of a weird Libran scale of uh, Robert Schumann and Clara Schumann, mm -hmm. that when you went on YouTube, I could find 100 people trying to play Robert Schumann, but only one playing Clara Schumann. So I, I think it's funny. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of come back around in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a relationship, for sure. And, but I mean, I, the, I sort of see you as, it's not a whole generation difference, because it's not that many years, but the generation that came after me, I, there are many, um, strong women artists, I mean, in, that, in the 80s, the people which you are from. And um, we're very close, but yet there was a real shift mm -hmm. from my generation. And I always thought that somebody like Mike Smith was a reaction to what I did, you know, uh -huh. in a way. That's interesting, actually. I mean, I I but he's a baby, and baby don't have, a, don't have gender differences. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into Melanie Klein later. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I guess I was thinking then, though, uh, there is this moment then you were both dealing with gender, in particular female gender, as subject matter in those works we were discussing. But I think you both departed fairly quickly onto dealing with much bigger topics, Dara, and I would say there's a series of works you made that are more overtly kind of activist or dealing with, um, you know, current politics that are occurring, such as the Tianapin Square piece you did. Um, could you say a little bit about what, the sh what shift occurred between the work you were doing with these mediatized images of women and then w when you kind of moved on? I guess, more current affairs-based. It's uh, interesting. Uh, actually, there's a, a phase in between that mm. not many people uh, mention, mm. for whatever reasons, a couple okay. of years on Damnation of Faust yes. uh, and making uh, the Faust character into a kind of female form mm. so that the gender role was reassigned. Mm. And so both Marguerite and Faust took on female Mm. Um, and Faust was not the protagonist, but actually Marguerite, who suffers immensely in male-written uh, Faust, like Goethe, um, 
was the one that was uh, stronger, who, who was resurrected, but not through his power. Anyway, so that, that's, an, that's another whole phase of the 80s. Mm. And uh, coming out of that is also coming out of certain experiences in the art world, certain documentaries, um, growing up around artists who, I think you're right, came after you in a certain way, like mm. Barbara Kruger, Jenny Holzer, mm. um, uh, Cindy Sherman, uh, that... Um, it, it seemed important to me to look uh, in a broader base of what was happening to us, and not to say that one can get much more broader than gender relationship or even feminism, yeah. but I was a little shocked uh, by the first bombing of the World Trade Center, therefore hostage. I was shocked by the Gulf War, which we uh, together heard the bombing, uh, the, the newscasting ever so accurately, right on time, prime time, uh, issuing out the bombing uh, uh, in the Gulf. Is uh, it a drama? Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And... Um, and feeling something had to be said, mm. and feeling that 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 didn't it didn't occur to me to reflect on me as as woman or male uh, at that time, and now it's even much more complex. But it it was me as human as a human being mm. needing to comment on human conditions. Mm. And I would say then, I mean, Joan, you showed some short parts of the work reanimation, which I've seen the performance of probably three or four times now, um, and also exists as an um, installation, and then also the recent Venice work. I think reanimation, each time I've seen it, the thing that strikes me most about it, it's, a, it's kind of written about in terms of this environmental subject matter, but actually what strikes me is the cycles in it of time and repetition and things disappearing and coming forth and then disappearing again. Maybe you could just say a little bit about what led you to make that work. To make reanimation. Yeah. Well, I made a piece based on an Icelandic saga, and I spent a lot of, quite a bit of time in Iceland. And while I was there um, working on this, which was a video and a performance, I found the writer Haldor Laxness, so I read all his books, and I was particularly attracted to one book. I become very, um, I find something, like Abby Warburg, one of his books of writing which I based a piece on and it stays with me and then I, I can't let it go and I have to turn it into something and that mm -hmm. happened with this book Under the Glacier and um, what I liked about Helder and also you know I'm, I'm no spring chicken and so as you get older your interests change and shift mm -hmm. and I think I'm um, for instance particularly in relation to reanimation I was more interested in working with shall we call say Haldor Laxness is a very um, witty and brilliant writer, and he writes about nature in a very beautiful way that has wit to it. It's not sentimental. Um, mm. And so I, there's one, and, and he describes phenomenon like the, um, the, the bird that stands in the wind, even though it's so frail, it's never blown away because it can put its head into the wind. Or the bee, what does the bee do? It trans transmits, isn't it a miracle what the bee does? And it is a miracle, all these. So that's where I'm at now, thinking about the world that is disappearing around us and all these miracles of nature. And so that was when I began to think of that, of, that, of these, this, these phenomena in that way when I, began, when I was working with the Haldor Laxness text. So I just quoted these um, parts about nature from that book and based the whole piece 
around that. And then the idea that the glaciers are melting. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's been happening over a period of, say, since the late 70s of shifting to wider subjects. Yes, than, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I guess, and I'm worried now about time and opening up to the audience, so I'm just going to ask one or two more questions that are more to do with, I guess, the structures of the world of art that we work in and the kind of institutional structures and the critical structures. How have your experiences, I guess, early on, and the, I mean, I'm sure they've changed radically, but with institutions and commercial galleries and these structures been, I guess, when, when you started making work, I think it must have been a very different situation in terms of the amount of women being shown in institutions such as MoMA to the way it is today. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I didn't think about um, when when I, I I also very much grew up loving art. Uh, it gave me hope, mm -hmm. and I didn't think about making art. Um, although I think I've been given a gift, and I think it's important to recognize your gifts and to express them and to use them. Uh, I think that things happen to me by luck, fate, or something weird uh, <laughs> that I don't know why. But uh, I know I got my first show uh, because... Um, <laughs> actually, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I was turned down by artist space. <laughs> 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 so thank you. <laughs> it wasn't this guy. <laughs> it wasn't at all. I I wanted to. Uh, I was asked. Dan Graham friend thought that I was ready. I didn't think I was ready, but he asked me, and I was working with a woman, uh, Suzanne Kufler, in the arts, and we were trying to get our work out through alternative spaces. And Dan thought that it would be great. And someone came over who will go and mention, and saw my work and just said, "Did something happen to you?" And really, there there was no understanding. There was no nothing. And uh, then they asked my friend if she would show. And she said, oh, I'll show, but only with my friend, Eric Birnbaum. So I got the show because she got the show. So this is how it all started. I, I saw the gallery, uh, Centro Diffusione Grafica, by accident. Uh, and they invited me in. Um, many things have happened by God's grace or just by uh, luck or fortune or something and going on and on. I did not think about galleries. I avoided galleries like the plague. I do want to give complete credit to my gallery right now, Marion Goodman Gallery. I am, and I'm, I'm not doing that because they're in the first row. Uh, I, I, I would say that I didn't know galleries could um, support their artists in certain ways and um, I was very ill last year, and I owe my life to Marion. And I'm just going to say that, so that's the opposite side of it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, when I began, um, I began to really not in galleries at all, except for Castelli-Sanaman that showed my videos. 
And I did some performances in Castelli Sonneman, but I didn't have a gallery. I wasn't represented by a gallery. And I was primarily interested in working in alternative spaces and outdoors and, um, yeah, in, in odd galleries. There was a gallery on Broom Street, La Giudice Gallery, where I performed. But it was a big, oh, I liked the space, it was very rough. And I liked these, um, I liked very much industrial spaces. I worked on the docks and, um, there was a performance that the audience saw from a roof. So I was interested in finding these odd spaces. And the very first time I was invited to be, um, pub be in a situation was by a gallery in Rome, Latico, and Simone Forti had something to do with it. Not inviting me, but she had something to do with organizing these performance festivals in which um, they invited um, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and um, Simone herself and Tricia came, and so that was my first um, experience in that kind of situation. And I think for many artists, going to Europe was very important because there was more support for the kind of work that I did and that we did in Europe than there was here at the time. But then there was the going back and forth of, of creating that kind of um, push and pull and then being recognized here a little bit more. So I, had, I started showing galleries very late. I showed with Pat Hearn and then she passed away. She was an amazing um, person. Then Colin passed away, and that was an, another tragedy, and that was very sad um, for many of us. Um, and so I became interested in showing my work in the context of the installation in the 90s when I had a show at the Stadelik Museum. And then I began to shift, and I became interested in that situation and shifting back and forth. Um, it's never been easy for me in this situation to find. I have a gallery now, but it's not an easy, it wasn't easy. And um, anyway, that's my relationship to galleries, but. So in terms of, I guess, more museum type situations, were you, when you had the show at the retrospective at the Stadelik, was that the first moment where you started to revisit older performances and think of them in installations? Yes, because um, Doreen Mignon was the mm. curator and I think that she, was the most important curator because she helped me figure out how to do that. Mm. The first thing we did was take all my objects and props and make a big pile of them and put them in the middle of the room. And really? say, yeah, it was the first thing we did. And say, now, what shall we do? <laughs> you from know, from di many do? different works? Yeah, many different really? works. Really? Just a huge pile, of, like a Jack Smith piece. It was a big pile of objects. I love it. So, um, yeah, that's when I kind of figured out how to do that and what to do and how to do mm. it. And it was a long process, you know, mm. it took, it took um, I mean, that was the first time and then the next time it got better, I mm. think. So that must have been such a radical shift for you then, that moment. It was, but I really that. enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's really important. Dara, I was, sorry, you were about to say something. I was just thinking, I remembered um, when I spoke to you last year and I think this is fairly in books as well too, but you first showed technology transformation in a hairdresser, is that right? Yeah, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> yes I did it, and she was a female. Um, but I, it, the reason I got to show there was I, I was wondering how to show work, particularly outside of the system like the mm. galleries, and where could it go in public space? And there was a hairdresser, and this is the difference between today and uh, yesteryear, uh, was that it was the only storefront down here and perhaps in Manhattan that had a monitor in the window. And I asked, like, yep. And now, of course, you can't get away from them. But I asked, like, could I possibly 
show my work in that monitor, you know, and kind of um, intercede into that. Uh, and so the the, ga uh, the the gallerist, the hairdresser, asked me this. Was, <laughs> the, the gallerist uh, asked me, "What is your work about?" And I don't know how to say always what my work is about. So I said, "It's it's about Wonder Woman." And she said, "That's fantastic because <laughs> I." I, I love Wonder Woman, and I've been told that I look like her, which she did, and that's how I got my show in that salon. Amazing. If galleries were only that easy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but sometimes I, I do want to say one thing uh, about institutions that um, along the way, uh, I, I do see waves. I see life in kind of waves, and I think that at the beginning, I actually, if we're going to make categories, mm -hmm. that uh, I, there was a time I turned around, as did some other women colleagues, and saying, my God, it's all gay male curators who are supporting us. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was true. And uh, less women, and then, then I had Rona Hoffman kind of support me, mm -hmm. uh, Paula Cooper in New York, and later on, of course, Marion. Um, but I don't find the institution as dominated in a certain way, uh, and that's interesting to me. Hmm. And uh, the politics are sometimes different. And I do want to say that at the beginning I was pretty anti-institution, whereas now I think that it can be positive, but it can also be negative. And that as an artist, uh, one has to realize when it's being positive mm -hmm. and when you feel like making a statement there and when it might be negative uh, simply because it can't afford to do certain kind of work mm -hmm. and when you step outside of the system. And both are there for you and it's a fork in the road. Hmm. I think, um, I, yeah, in agreeing with that is that, for instance, when we first, when all of us, some of us started making video, we thought, we kept thinking, Oh, well, there's, first of all, there's Channel 13, and then that disappeared. And then there's, we had great hope in cable TV, and nothing happened <laughs> with cable TV except what's happening now, which is interesting, but it doesn't include us. But, um, but what happens is that the, the material, the work, flows. It's like water. It flows into another area. And I think that um, it, it flowed into the museums, in a way, and for some, not everybody. And... Um, and also more into the gallery. But I do think it's important, for me it's important to have the work be seen. I really want to communicate. I want an audience. I want an audience to see my work. And so um, I try to find ways of making that happen. So I have a gallery now too, Gavin Brown, which I'm very happy about. But hmm. just to mention, thank you, Gavin Brown. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I think that the main thing that um, institutions and curators do for artists is they help they uh, they they assist them, they help them put the work out and um, there has to be that middle person we can't do it all ourselves so we need that and yeah the institution I used to be against showing in galleries actually at the very beginning I was Did against she? I turned down uh, yeah several th I could have made that shift a long time ago and uh, in a way maybe it's foolish yeah but that's what it is. I guess on the subject of audiences, I'm going to open it up now um, to the audience. Does anyone have any questions? I think there's a microphone here. Hello. Um, 
So I was wondering, um, I took a class over the summer called Human Rights and Visual Culture, and we learned a lot about the work that the Guerrilla Girls did during the 80s. So I was just wondering if their work at all impacted you at the time, or what you thought of their goals and ambitions as activists for female artists. What's the question? I couldn't hear the thing. We couldn't quite hear that, sorry. Oh, oh so, okay. Could you maybe hold sure. it close? Um, so I took a class over the summer at Columbia called Human Rights and Visual Culture, and we studied a bit about what the Guerrilla Girls did during the 80s, and I was just wondering if that had any impact on your artwork or what your opinions are on what their activism, their activist work was for female artists at the time. I, I once got to wear an honorary gorilla suit. <laughs> that, that was a very prized moment for me. Uh, I, I feel very indebted, actually. Um, I, I don't know all the identities um, and not supposed to. What I liked very much was an ability for people to take on that more radical role and come out with uh, specifics about how many women are being shown, where they're shown, and it didn't, it made you feel not so alone. And it was kind of like pranksters, you know, in a certain way, uh, kind of bringing out some uh, really necessary uh, facts that, that were well-researched and well-presented, taking on a kind of anonymity um, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't mean it affected my work, it affected the road that I was traveling. And I'm very grateful. I have to say, yeah, I think just shortly it was a very important, I mean, very important um, movement and group. And what they did was really essential, important for the, um, for the whole situation. Yeah. And um, again, it didn't affect me directly, but I, I really think that if anything's going to happen, younger people have to do things like that and become active. And right now, there's a lot to change. So for me, it's very, I'd like to see things like that happen. Um, Dara, this is specific to uh, the Kiss the Girls video. Um, your use of music and then your versions. I'm assuming that's you singing in between. I'm sorry, that's what? Is that you singing? I don't sing. You could pay me and I won't sing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, the mimic... Uh, but, but it is an independent voice. It is someone who did uh, jazz uh, um, as an independent, Dory Levine. Okay, so like, I guess the relationship between the covers of the songs and then the, the actual songs and the sort of mimicry and the repetitiveness that's implied with using that type of popular music. And then I've always tried to understand the yellow bird at the end <laughs> in that context as well. I was wondering if you could just illuminate that for us. Sure. Um, what I did is I thought that the kind of uh, theatrical setup of a tic-tac-toe boxes of men and women, that the women's gestures especially are isolated, the men are kind of like receding men. Uh, the song, that program showed up to three times a day in 1979 on major networks here. 
And so I thought something needed to be said about it. And the songs, Kiss the Girls, Make Them Cry, and Found a Cure were number one on the disco floor. So it was like watching one on the television floor and one on the disco floor. And um, I grew up on Godard, um, was in love. Uh, and I, I love the way he would play with sometimes cutting out, cut something under, you know? and come up with a surprise for you, which uh, disturbed kind of the narrative, what you were getting at, and kind of smacked you in the face sometimes. And uh, Yellow Bird is that I heard my editor actually singing with his uh, <laughs> brother uh, off time. But I like that um, this he sings in, you know, Yellow Bird and Banana Tree, a kind of spoofy, but he sings for you and me. And, and that's what television is trying to do, but that's what I'm trying to do also. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, how do you feel about this constant catch-up game in technology where the high-def, the high-res rules all? Can you both speak about that? Because I feel you both challenge it in certain ways, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. High-def. You know, the perfect, polished image. right. When I first saw that, I, ha I didn't like it at all. The first um, video I saw, the high def, I, I hated it. It was too clean and too shiny. Now, I mean, I think that we are victims of, like, they just recently changed the format of the, of, um, of the camera, and it's a different shape now. It's, it's not a square. It's a, it's a rectangle. And I think that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a... I, I don't feel comfortable with it. Um, I've gotten used to high def, and I've grown to it's, I've grown accustomed to it. But I like to mix different periods, different cameras, different aspects of my work in the same, um, just to to um, to cut that shininess and the perfectness perf perfection of it. Yeah, I just think that um, high def is is a stage, and it's uh, you know next def is going to be even something else. I might not be here for it, and um, it is a tool of the trade. Uh, what I what I love is that when recently, thank goodness, Museum of Modern Art bought in a 1982 piece, um, my editor. Um, it said to me, you know, we, we, we had to refurbish it to, to make it be able to go into museum in permanent collection. He said, but we can make this high def now. You know, and I, I just know you don't quite get it. You know, it, it, it needs to breathe who it was, how it is, what voice it had. Uh, high def, honestly, doesn't mean much to me. Uh, it's like smoking drugs and saying, ah, that's a really great green. You know, as you see it for the first time and you say, I think I could do without the drug now. You know, it, it's, it's something like that for me. I'm not smoking. I, I wonder if you would comment on what I see as a big shift in feminism and uh, if you just take like a role model like Maud from our generation and then Miley Cyrus or certainly Madonna 
as very an influential role model if you have any comment on, on the changing landscape. Well, well Mali Cyprus is a changing landscape. <laughs> I don't mean to be stupid about it. But, um, I, I'm sorry, I, I just, um, <clears throat> you know, the changing landscape for me is that and is bigger than that. Uh, if you asked me if Donald Trump would ever run for president, um, I, I would not have believed it. It's like a nightmare for me. Um, I, I watched Wrecking Ball a lot. And um, I, I actually thought it was a good tape, actually. And uh, Miley, uh, Miley Cyprus, who my younger assistants cut their hair like, uh, is, is really... Uh, so grotesque, I haven't been able to confront it in my work yet. So, uh, but Maud is something I'm not remembering well enough, to be honest with you. So. Uh, Golden Girls, you know, she was... Oh, thank you. Was she the, was she the grandmother or? Oh, no, I was on Golden Girls. I saw my future and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I like Golden Girls. I also, I don't know, I want to bring some other, I don't know if anybody, nobody here remembers Imogene Coca, do they? Well, let's just think about her for a minute. She was Sid Caesar's partner in comedy, and she was amazing. I was brought up um, with the first TV sets where you sat with your family and watched, we watched these uh, com comedy, my, we were very interested in comedy, so that was one of my early influences. And you know, role models actually, Imogene Coca, and actresses like that. Um, I was wondering if you think that you were solidary enough of other female artists and practitioners during your lifetime, and if not, what, how would you change that in retrospect? We didn't quite catch that, sorry. Do you mind repeating it? Um, I was wondering if you, if you think you were, um, I don't know the, the word, solidary? Um, soli solidarity. solidarity. Yeah, what would be the adjective? <laughs> I, I, I was wondering if you think you showed enough solidarity with other female artists and practitioners during your career, and if not, uh, how you think you could have improved that if you think that's important? <laughs> um, what can I say? I think that one, in a natural way, becomes close to or has a dialogue with artists that you feel connected to, like Simone Forti. I like her. I love her work. And um, she's a very good friend. I don't know if you call that solidarity. I wouldn't call it that exactly. It's a friendship. And, um, you know, you also develop... You go and see, I like I go to see Dara's work. We never see, we hardly ever see each other. And um, that's another kind of connection. I respect, I mean, one has respect and interest in other, say, but male artists too. So I don't really anymore um, make a big separation. And over the years, I think one is interested in female language. For instance, Carol Schneeman, 
for, as an example of somebody who's very interested in, in how, in female language and what that means. Right now I'm reading the books of Eleanor Ferrante. I've just finished them all. <laughs> and I think that she's a contemporary feminist, actually. And she's um, very important in that sense. So, yeah, one is interested in how does a woman write? How does a woman see the world? But not exclusively. Yeah. Well, for me, there were, was two kinds of uh, solidarity. Uh, three, actually. Um, one was in the field of uh, video that um, I think that the people starting with me coming right after Nam June uh, it did feel, or I felt certainly, a very strong solidarity that we were trying to do something new. Um, we, we were not concerned with selling it. We were concerned with making it at that time. And uh, we, uh, there were more women who entered. And when we traveled together to shows, uh, we had a very proud feeling of ourselves. So I remember three of us that used to be together, and we'd say, oh, we're the three muses, you know. And it had a very good feeling. And in general with video, uh, I, th I found people when we had, Doreen Mignot, in fact, did the show of 22 installations at the Stedlick, um, that, um, there was a, a strong feeling of camaraderie. Uh, and I have the feeling that, and I, I hope I'm wrong, that the more value by the system was placed onto these as artworks, that um, all of a sudden it became a little more competitive. So there was less solidarity and a little bit more of uh, competition. I, I do think in, in the best sense that the art world is like a big family. And um, it's, a fam it's a group of people who really um, love the work, love each other's work, love the dialogue. And as Dara said, yes, there's a lot of competition and there's all kinds of ups and downs. But I think that's the underlying glue that holds us all together. And I do think it's the one thing in the world that's hopeful. <laughs> it's one of the mm. things, but it's one of the main things in which we can say it's a positive um, situation. That's interesting. One thing that wasn't referenced, you've talked about the alternative spaces and the importance, but I've been also thinking lately that in a way with the New York State Council and the National Endowment in that time, you know, who were the patrons? You know, was it, you know, kind of like the Rockefeller Foundation, the NEA, and NISCA, and the very um, hardworking founders of those spaces. Um, they gave the space, um, allowed the discourse to happen. It, the whole situation has changed. Right, no, but I want to hear you talk about Yeah, that. well, I mean, when I began, there were grants given to individual artists by the National Endowment and also by the New York State Council. And um, so these grants, particularly in the, in the 80s, they started from the Rockefeller Foundation. And also the studios, you probably had these situations. The studios would allow us, this is another kind of grant, to work there at night. So we'd go and work all night. And that would be the only time. We could work in a studio with all the special effects and so on. So th in that way, that really kind of altered um, the look of what we were doing and also 
um, it, it, it took us on another path, and it had a big, I think it had a big effect on things. Um, I think that it's, that's, the situation is quite different now. It's, it's awful in this country, that the National Endowment, that there are no more individual grants to artists, mm -hmm. and that that whole situation is changed. I think it's very hard for young artists in that, because of that, but I'm not sure. How. Well, I'd, I'd, something that broke my heart about a, a month ago was uh, I went to a panel at Electronic Arts Intermix and Video Freaks was there. And I had idealized Video Freaks, uh, who were both male and female. And I had thought, oh, they were like guerrilla television. They did it on their own, et cetera. And then I found out that NISCA was supporting them all along. And I actually hated that. I, I, I'm so sorry to say that. I, I, I had some kind of romantic vision that you, you steal from the rich and, and, I don't know, give to the poor or something, but that you don't take from NISCA to set you up and be a video freak. You know, it just it didn't occur to me that way. But uh, certainly... Uh, spaces that were existent in the kitchen and that still does is supporting younger art, uh, TV lab that doesn't exist anymore, uh, very good writing on the changes in grant uh, systems, especially the NEA would done by uh, Michael Brenson, um, very good book on that, and uh, things definitely have changed, but are, you're saying that perhaps without these protective spaces that uh, certain ideas wouldn't have reached, uh, germinated, uh, because these spaces existed. And certainly, uh, I mean, when I was trying to edit Wonder Woman, I went down to something like New York Film, I don't remember the exact name, of, Film Video Arts or something, and for very, 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 very little money, and it was the first time I could get to see Wonder Woman on a color TV. I was making it without even having seen that she was in color in red, white, and, white and blue. So um, there, there was uh, that phenomenal burst of um, a kind of support system, and then there was the as with anything, the negative side, when all of a sudden Karen Finley was being questioned by the NEA and uh, Andreas uh, Serrano. Um, so uh, it, this is an odd country that, uh, and I think that the arts right now, it's so unfortunate, I'm gonna use a word that's overused, but there's a total commodification of the arts and that young people, in my opinion, that want to be artists are under this fantastic pressure because if you don't make it, you're, you're broken. And um, I do think arts can be one of the saving graces of the society at this time and culture, so. I just want to say that, um, well, I always say to my students, if you don't love it, don't do it because mm -hmm. you're not gonna, you can't count on being recognized or getting any kind of feedback. And I think there are, the good thing is that there are young artists working, and I think that they form little communities that we don't know about mm -hmm. in, in different places. They're called cells. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that is a good Oh, place. I just wanted to mention Electronic Arts Intermix, which is an amazing um, organization that supported video art all these years and preserves it and Video art is one of the most, uh, if you want to call it video art, is, is an almost, you know, it's a fragile, almost, you know, non-material form and can be 
it can fall apart at any minute. And there, so there are places like Electronic Arts that are constantly upgrading it, and that's just necessary to keep it um, to keep it going. Do you want this to be the last question? Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to do the last question. I just think I, I, I'm going to do a rambling, um, hopefully, um, a question that makes some sense. I mean, I, I'm, in terms of thinking about legacy and framing and um, the way that feminism is being kind of dealt with today, I think it'd be really interesting to ask your opinions of both of your own work and of your peers' work um, and what you think and who or what system. I think there's no singular answer to this question, but what is kind of controlling or moving or maneuvering the kind of femi the legacy of feminist art? And, or is it being, is the narrative, do you think, in any way being changed or altered or simplified or in, in its kind of, in a reanimation or, or maybe just over time? I have to say because um, I'm, I feel very, um, a little inadequate in answering that because um, I'm really busy and I don't have time to look at um, younger artists. Uh, I don't have time to, if people tell me about things, I go and look at them. And so I feel it's a real gap and, and it's sad that I don't see more work. Um, I think feminism, the idea of feminism, what feminism has done is it's in a, all of us, and we're all feminists, I hope, in this room probably, and it just in the sense that we, it's just part of our DNA that we believe um, that women have rights, and you know that that young women artists should be. I mean, I teach, and I have more women students, female students, than I have male students. And so that's, and then you look at galleries and um, I always count how many men and how many women. And it's already always um, many more men in, in the list of people in the galleries. So what I think is lacking, I mean, when we were, you know, in the 70s, there was, there was a lot of fighting the guerrilla girls and also the um, artists who were fighting for the rights to be recognized. And I'm not sure you could answer that question for me. I mean, this, these evenings represent your voice in interest in feminism and what that means for you. And so I would just be interested in, in not, I can't answer that question, but I think that the younger generation can answer that question better than I can because I'm outside of your situation. I think it's changed everything, but you know, there's so many issues, I have to say, that are important to deal with, like racism and um, you know, what's going on with many issues right now. I just think it's part of a bigger picture. And so that's why I don't focus just on feminism. Yeah. I, I'm gonna ask Kathy something in relation to what you're saying and extend this last question because it's important. You wrote me a note. I'm giving it away. And you used the word misogynist in it. Okay, yes. And you thought that in, that I think contemporary feminism 
somehow is connected to misogynists? I think I was referring quite specifically, it was some notes I made, yeah, I was thinking about, um, I guess, quite young artists' work, certain artists working more online, certain types of performances, um, and also I was thinking just about women's presence online now, like journalists and many other people who have a voice online, and a, quite a violent reaction of misogyny on Twitter and things like that back at people, these women having a like very active feminist voice in public. So a form of hatred in quite an obvious of a public way, yes. By the society. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, what, what I think it is, and I don't get to see enough of uh, really a younger art except through my teaching, is that uh, the vocabulary has changed, that there is a, uh, a different focus, that there is a group of younger artists that very much considers their practice feminists, that uh, some of it I don't understand because there's taking people like Miley Cyprus to um, try to, I'm sorry, <laughs> just saying, uh, to, to examine uh, their roles, but sometimes it, it's maybe like the mirror that Joan held up, which is great because that mirror could break the image in a, in a way as well but I'm not always understanding it. What I do think is that actually we are in times that the, uh, actually the, the role that women have fought, for, many women have fought for probably in this room, um, it is in danger. Uh, I think that this, uh, the society in America right now is in danger, more than I've ever seen before. And I think there's a backlash against feminist practice and, um, I'm hoping that you're all going to vote in a way very strongly on my side and, um, and we'll encourage that. And uh, there were shows like, I'm more familiar with Gloria, shows like WAC that I was part of that went into. I'm less familiarized, unfortunately, with uh, the shows that came after that, that very much show, and maybe you want to address and close on that, where you think the field uh, is going in the shift of, of vocabulary and positioning. Maybe, maybe, <clears throat> or my, I guess what I meant by legacy was actually the kind of continuation or the historicization of works made by women in the 70s and, and 80s. Sorry, could you say that again? What I meant by the word legacy was more the historicization, canonization, or the or, um, um, where this work goes, what context it lives on, and who's writing the histories um, of this work, who's talking about the friend... Like, I think tonight's really important because I think it's so important to hear you speak about your context and your friendships, not just in a feminist context, but as artists and that that gives a kind of deeper, richer history to your work, even though you're, you know, already your work is, is um, appreciated, of course, but then um, the work made by you and your peers it, through over these decades, and how does it kind of live on in the future? Who's in kind of control or of... of it's hard to say. Yeah. yeah no, but I, I have to say that if it weren't for, in a way, for me, younger artists are my, you know, I'm so glad that um, younger artists are interested in my work. It's a huge, um, it's a, just a wonderful encouragement and 
uh, energy, it's an energy giving situation to have, um, to have that audience of younger artists, very important for me. And um, it's hard to say, I don't know if Dara has this experience, but when you hear your work being talked about by historians, or, you know, it's strange. It doesn't sound like your work, and sometimes. And it's another way of looking at it, and you have to let go. You have to let go of your idea about your work. I'm, I, have, I just want to say I have two books, a book coming out, a big book. And I never had a big book, and so Dara has a, a big book. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's coming out on Sunday at PS1. I just want to say that. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's one way. But, you know, if I look at that book, I think, well, how will people see that book? I mean, how are they going to interpret these photographs and these scripts, and how are they going to deal with that? And last year I was in, in Italy, or last spring, and I had two experiences with students doing reenactments of my work. I hate that word, but I'll use it. Hmm. One of them was they took a piece called Waltz, which is not a performance, and they did a whole performance about it, and it was like seeing my piece called Waltz by people on drugs. <laughs> but I sort of liked it. And then the second one, yeah. And then the students in Venice made a version of um, Song Delay, which was really very precise, and they used the empty squares of Venice to, to stage the actions in Song Delay, which was an outdoor piece, and it was beautiful. Anyway, those are two examples, and, you know, I, I was kind of dreading this happening, but now I, I, I'm enjoying it. And you know, even if I, like, a like this, you know, one of my young students did mirror check, and he came out and he had um, put grease all over his body, and he played very loud music, and he gyrated as he was doing it. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I hated it. <laughs> but anyway. But I don't know, that's just one way to answer but the question. There, there, there are, like for the first time, Muse Museum of Modern Art came out with a substantial, bigger than both of ours, book uh, on, on women artists. And um, it, it's good to see that in a kind of institutionalized space like that because um, it'll get out, but it gets out categorized. And, you know, it, it's, it's always been a question of who interprets what and where the power lies. Um, I'm going to bring up Trump again. You know, if we let uh, uh, Trump, you know, or someone like that in power, uh, how do you get your voice to remain empowered? And I think that I would encourage uh, artists writing to begin again, like writing on, on one's own work, actually. There, there's been a good history of that, and maybe there can be, or I just did a piece on Bruce Conner, and uh, I, I enjoyed doing that very much, but it's my interpretation, and it's the way he looks at women in his film, which I don't think has ever been interpreted by, certainly not by a woman before. And uh, look for, you know, Brecht used to say that, that with the media, it, it had gotten so large, and I'll include the internet and everything else, that the larger it gets, the more holes become inside, that there are holes inside. And, and I think that artists have to find where those holes are and kind of activate them. Great place to end. Thank you.